Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The former chief of Iran's National Security Foreign Relations Committee, Ambassador Syed Hossein Mosavian, has published a piece entitled, Israeli Sabotage Should Not Be Allowed to Kill the Iran Nuclear Deal. He writes, on September 12th, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken said it was unlikely that the U.S. and Iran would reach a new nuclear deal anytime soon. Negotiations between Iran and the world powers to revive the Iran nuclear deal, known as the JCPOA, are faced with a new deadlock. For insight into this and other issues, let's turn to our first guest. He's a broadcaster, he's an analyst and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, an award-winning journalist, by the way, based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. It's my pleasure always to be with you guys. Before we get to the details of, of this story and some others, uh, as we've talked about with you during the week, but I think it's very important for us to stay very much on top of this, uh, you are now finding yourself under an incredible amount of pressure and resistance and pushback, along with physical threats from uh, Zionist organizations that are trying to silence your voice, both in Israel as well as in the occupied colony of Israel, as well as uh, in, in Canada as well. Give us an update on what's going on, Laith Marouf. Well, the latest has been that uh, you know the, the there was a special committee that was called by the Congress and the Canadian Parliament, uh, including members of the Israeli Knesset, that brought in the executives of social media platforms like Twitter and ordered them to erase me uh, from virtual reality. This is where we're at that uh, in, in the you know the level of freedoms in uh, Canada and the United States and the West in general. Uh, so that is now a fight that uh, must be taken to court to stop interference by governments and social media, and at the same time stop social media and governments from implementing the nefarious uh, IHRA definition of uh, what is anti-Semitism that makes it uh, that if you criticize the political ideology of Zionism and or uh, the uh, Zionist colony Israel and its and its genocide of the Palestinian people. You are considered anti-Semitic. It, this is a definition that is uh, in contradiction of all basic laws uh, of freedom of speech in in most countries uh, that allow us to criticize uh, political ideologies and states. You know, Leith, it says to me that the people who are pushing this are in trouble. That any time you have to take some guy who's posting something on Twitter or whatever and say, oh, my gosh, we've got to stop this. Anytime you have to look at every little thing, the problem is the dam has big holes in it and the water's flowing through. And they're trying to plug a hole here that's Laith Maroof and plug a hole here that's Garland Nixon or this person or that person. And to me, it shows. And, and, and let me add this, Laith. 
Now, when we see something happen, when we see them bomb, bomb the Palestinians or something, and you see these large reactions around the world like we never saw before, it says to me, they're afraid of people like Latham Maroof. They don't see you as, oh, well, he's got to be stopped because he's doing something wrong. It's he is exposing us. And this is another example of people um, no longer willing to put up with the, with, the, with the abuse of the Palestinians. Your thoughts? Well, let me, before you respond to that, let me add one more thing. And that is, A, Garland, you're absolutely right. But B, when in what is supposed to be a democracy— when you have to try every means at your disposal to stifle the free exchange of ideas in the public square, when you go as far as threatening a man's life, when you go as far as posting pictures of his home, putting up his address, and posting pictures of his family, when you threaten a man's family— I, I, In Nazi Germany. I, well— <laughs> Laith Maroof. Yeah, I mean, look, they uh, have done anything that they can do within the context of, uh, you know, Canadian realities. They, in, in Palestine, if I was actually on the ground, as they have pointed out in their tweets uh, and comments about me, I'll be killed for uh, just these comments that I was posting. And uh, my family would have been um, harassed and uh, my home demolished. And that's what, what angers them, is that me as a Palestinian citizen of Canada uh, can actually say things that are disparaging of Zionism and the state of Israel uh, without being punished for it without being killed for it. That's what angers them. So they went and did the best thing that they can do in this context, which is assassinate me, but virtually, uh, and assassinate my reputation uh, in ways that I cannot uh, defend myself. Uh, the, the amount of tsunami of media that they created, uh, you know, in Canada, where I was not allowed to say anything, where... Uh, Jewish white people and Christian white people and secular white people were writing for four weeks about what is racism. They wanted to define what racism white people, <laughs> including Jewish white people, thought that they have the right to define what racism is. And uh, apparently uh, I have no right to defend myself at all. Ambassador Musavian writes, Israel's campaign of fear against Iran's nuclear program has been ongoing for 40 years. Over the past four decades, every now and then, Israel has claimed that Iran is only a few years away from a nuclear bomb. For example, in 95, Netanyahu claimed Iran is three to five years from being able to produce a nuclear weapon. Laith Marouf, again, former chief of Iran's National Secu Foreign Security Relations Committee, Ambassador Syed Mosavian, in his piece, Israeli sabotage should not be allowed to kill the Iran nuclear deal. Laith Marouf. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that the Zionists don't want to have the deal to be implemented, and they fought really hard from the first time it was implemented and uh, and, and got their way. Uh, also, at the same time, I want people to be a little bit careful because I think the Zionists are just playing the bad cup, uh, you know, part of the good cup, bad cup that the Democrats are playing with them in this situation. I don't believe the United States itself wants 
to sign this deal and has uh, only uh, since the beginning, since the first time it was signed by Obama, it was just a delay tactic uh, to be able to reorganize the uh, you know war pieces on the on the battlefield in Western Asia uh, by the United States. And uh, we saw, of course, Obama from the beginning, um, you know, not implementing the parts that the United States was responsible for. Uh, and of course, after him, Trump uh, just threw it all down uh, the drain. And now what we see is a continuation by uh, Biden in his delay tactic, uh, you know, accepting some parts and then refusing some parts. And then it's all being played as a, a media negotiation, not really the negotiations that are happening uh, behind the scene. What we see is, is just a media uh, ploy to delay uh, until there is a time for a confrontation between the two parties. Well, here's the other thing, too. Uh, here's, here's something I was thinking. You know, when we talk about Israel and Iran and influencing U.S. policy, right, that has nothing to do with Jews or non-Jews or, or niking Jews or anti-Semitism or anything like that. That is um, foreign policy. Um, it, I, I'll put it like this. If you look at the polls, a lot of Jewish people in, the, in America are left and oppose the policies of Europe and um, excuse me, of Israel in a lot of ways. And now they get uh, uh, Israel gets most of its support in um, the United States from uh, the um, uh, uh, what do you call them? Uh, the Christians, the um, Evangelical. Evangelical Christians. So in many instances, if you're opposing what Israel's doing, you're allying yourself with a lot of uh, American Jews and basically your opposition are not Jews. So how is it anti-Semitism if you're actually on the side of a lot of Jewish people opposing uh, Zionism, which is not Jewish? Most of the Zionists in America now are white evangelical Christians. Laith. Definitely, here is uh, the reality. On the, it, it's not there is no such thing as Jewish control of the media or, or of American foreign policy. What is there is that uh, it is an imperial uh, policy and position to have this Zionist colony in Palestine in order to make sure that the Arabic world is uh, geographically fractured and there will be never uh, a development in the region of uh, unification of the, of, of the area, uh, politically, economically, geographically. And uh, that's why we have constant wars for the last hundred years in, in the region. Not This is the, the actual purpose of uh, the Zionist colony. Um, and uh, as you pointed out, actually, the majority of uh, Canadians in public opinion uh, uh, surveys have said that they are opposing the policy of the Canadian state and uh, Zionism and apartheid in Israel and support that uh, charge. And similarly, in within the Jewish community and especially the younger populations. Uh, so, this has nothing to do with Judaism. In fact, Zionism is just a perversion uh, of Judaism that is, uh, you know, using the word of God, uh, the merciful, to create death and, uh, and segregation and apartheid. To your point about the United States government not really wanting the deal and what transpired after 
uh, President Obama got us into it. Dozens of lawmakers renew push to halt Iran nuclear deal. Nearly 50 Republicans in the U.S. Congress have renewed an effort to halt a return to the 2015 Iran nuclear deal by preventing the Biden administration from lifting sanctions on Iran. Uh, your thoughts, Leith Maroof? So it's it's clear it's clear the Iranians know this. Uh, even if a president of the United States signs on a deal, uh, if the Congress and Senate do not uh, ratify it, this deal is out the window the minute there's a new president. Uh, four years later, down the, the road, which in those four years nothing really gets done, let's say, of lifting sanctions and so on. So it's it's really uh, uh, you know. There's no way that Iran will sign a new deal if the United States does not agree to guarantees that uh, have ramifications for the Congress or an ex-president breaching this treaty, uh, financial ramifications and international law ramifications. And that's what the team, the Iranian team has been pushing on for the last few weeks, if we saw since the uh, stalemate happened. Iran keeps on asking for guarantees within the treaty that have consequences to the United States if it uh, decides to breach it, uh, as it has already done with the previous one. You know, the three of us consider ourselves professional journalists. Let me read that, right out of this article uh, from you. In August, author Salman Rushdie was stabbed on stage during a new, an event in New York, and police detained a 24-year-old named, he got his name, charged with attempted murder. Now listen to this. Several intelligence officials suggested that Matar had been in direct contact with Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard. They're implying here that the guy was stabbed and the Iran was involved. But what they actually say is some unnamed uh, uh, intelligence officials suggested that he'd been in contact, not that they were involved, not that they or not that there was any evidence. There was just a suggestion. I don't know. They might have been sitting around drinking a beer and suggested it. It is absurd. That, my friend, is propaganda. That's what we're dealing with here. Lath, your thoughts. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. However, Iran denied any involvement in the attack. And they talk about uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's. Uh, fatwa for his assa- for Rushdie's assassination. Then they say Tehran has long distanced itself from the decree. So yeah, but we've got unnamed intelligence officials making suggestions. Wilmer, I mean, come on, that's concrete evidence. So first, let me ask you this, Lath. I thought that not only had Tehran distanced itself from the decree, I thought it had been canceled. Help me with that, and then. Go to go to go to Garland's question. Yes, yes. I mean, the decree has been downgraded many times, and uh, the it is not an active decree. Uh, the other thing is that uh, you know Salman Rushdie has lost his uh, his uh, shine long time ago. Nobody from this generation um, of people that are listening to the radio right now even remembers him, probably. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know, for a claim that Iran suddenly after 30 years decided to uh, try to assassinate this irrelevant man, um, now in the midst of uh, a deal uh, signing with the U.S. on nuclear weapons, 
uh, a nuclear power. Uh, this is where the absurd comes. You know, they want they, they want people to think that those who lead uh, countries like Iran or North Korea or Syria are irrational beings. They're not, you know, they 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 don't think like human beings. Uh, which clearly uh, an irrational being would be. This is not the time to assassinate uh, Rushdie if if they really want to assassinate him. Um, and so, uh, to quote unidentified intelligence, that's always a marker of propaganda by the actual author who has doesn't even know anybody outside their their cubicle at that uh, you know newspaper. Final point here talking about the United States uh, Saudi lobbyist and ex-U.S. senator oversees millions in Republican campaign donations. Former Minnesota Senator Norman Coleman has been the chair of a Republican super PAC with ties to dark money group that promoted positive messaging about Saudi Arabia while at the same time working as a lobbyist for Riyadh. We have less than a minute. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is uh, the Saudis uh, following in the footpath of the Zionists. Um, you know, if you look at all these lobbyists that work for the Saudis, it's the same as that work for the Zionists. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, the Saudis will continue to be a cash cow to all politicians who all of them take the money, um, you know, and they will continue to be silent about the Saudis. But the truth of the matter, even if the Saudis didn't pay them, they would have stayed silent on the Saudis uh, and their violations of human rights and their wars. Uh, because again, uh, the Saudi state is as essential as the as the Zionist state in okay. the real order. Uh, because without the Saudis controlling Mecca and Medina and what is Islam, uh, we the, the Americans would have a challenge uh, on the ground. So uh, okay. you know, the, the occupation of Saudi Arabia is as as important as uh, the Zionist colony. Laith Maruf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Dreams has a piece entitled House GOP Agenda Signals Push for Social Security and Medicare Cuts. Quote, Republicans tell us over and over again that they will hand our earned Social Security and Medicare benefits over to Wall Street if they get power, according to Alex Lawson of Social Security Works. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He holds a Ph.D. in political economy, teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. He's the author of a number of books, including... The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, Jack, welcome back. Always glad to join you. So House Republicans on Wednesday unveiled parts of a policy agenda that indicates the party would push for cuts to Social Security and Medicare if it takes or retakes the uh, majority in November. 
There's a one-page summary of the agenda that House Republicans, led by Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, are expected to formally introduce, and it includes a highly misleading line that expresses the Republicans' commitment to save and strengthen Social Security and Medicare. Jack, your thoughts on this, particularly in the context of this article makes it appear as though the Republicans are out to kill it, and so the Democrats are there to save it. But I don't know that it's that clear cut. Some of it, to me, seems to be a difference in approach. Dr. Jack Rasmus. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the idea of uh, cutting Social Security uh, has always been part of the Republican uh, platform. I mean, this goes back to cutting means privatizing it. In other words, what they really want to do is uh, turn it over to the banks. In other words, instead of the uh, the government investing in the treasury bonds, the, the trust funds, you know, for uh, Medicare and retirement and so forth, instead of the government just uh, uh, investing in tr its own trust funds in, in the Social Security Trust, uh, they want to uh, give uh, individuals the choice of, uh, well, and let's put some of my money in, in the banks, right, to privatize it. Let the bankers, the bankers, uh, you know, have been salivating over that uh, huge fund and want to get their, their claws into it, invest it, right, uh, for, you know, decades here. Uh, so that's really what it's about. And in the course of that, you know, they will cut uh, some of the coverage, uh, you know, they really like to go after uh, SSI, Social Security uh, um, uh, Disability, SSDI, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, they they want to go after some of the other programs like uh, you know, prescription drugs and so forth, uh, which is not part of the trust fund, by the way. That's how it paid for out of the general budget. So this is always part of the Republican strategy, but you're right to have uh, an instinct here that maybe this is a you know, political kind of a thing. Uh, it's not clear. Uh, you know, a lot in the Repo in the Democratic Party uh, want to reform Social Security as Correct. well mm -hmm. instead of expanding it, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, Sanders had, had proposed. You know, Social Security only provides about a quarter of retirement needs. It, it was always designed to do that. Uh, the, you know, when it was passed uh, way back in, you know, right before World War II, uh, the whole idea was uh, Social Security would give you one, one quarter to one third of what your retirement needs are. Your private pension plan, you know, defined benefit plan through your union would get a, give another uh, quarter, third. And then um, your personal savings would provide a third. So at most, Social Security does not provide more than a third, never was designed to do so. Of course, the other two solutions, uh, private uh, savings have collapsed for most people, don't exist. And, uh, you know, you got, what, uh, 40, 50 percent of uh, the population living paycheck to paycheck. They got no savings. And uh, the union defined benefit pension plans have been destroyed uh, and pretty much replaced with, uh, you know, these 401k personal plans. Uh, so retirement, there's a retirement crisis in this country. And uh, what they're proposing to do uh, as part of the you know, perennial platform is uh, 
to make cuts into it. But I think there's some politics here because the Democrats always raise this right before elections. It's a big scare tactic. So that's part of it. And as I said, there's some Democrats who would like to do what the Republicans want to do. And my last reflection is that uh, whenever you have the government having to bail out uh you know, the general population like we just had with COVID here uh, or bail out, uh, uh, you know, the Great Recession, you know, somewhat. Uh, they they come around afterwards, the government, both parties and say, well, uh, we, we've run up the budget deficit and the debt so high, uh, we, we've got to take some of it back somehow, i.e. austerity always follows, austerity programs and proposals always follows these periods when you have a crisis and the government is uh, required to save the economy to throw some crumbs at uh, regular folks. And and there's part of this too. They're going to start looking for, you know, how are we going to take back some of uh, some of this stuff that we, th- we, we, we provided to people. They've cut off all those COVID programs, okay? But now you got a budget uh, uh, deficit, still a trillion dollars running, uh, mostly because of tax cuts and more spending. Um, but you've got a debt that's uh, close to $30 trillion. You know, the, the, the total debt in 2000 was $4 trillion. Now you're up to $30 trillion. Uh, and you've got to pay interest on that, and interest costs are going up. Uh, so they're going to start looking for ways to um, cut the deficit uh, on the backs of uh, regular folks. And that's what's called austerity. And, you know, there's part of that in this discussion as well. One data point. In 2017, among African-Americans receiving Social Security, 35% of elderly married couples and 58% of unmarried persons relied on Social Security for 90% of their retirement or their income. Wow. That's a dangerous, dangerous number. It certainly is. You know, two things, Dr. Jack, and that is, you know, I've had this feeling all along that Biden being the A, and Wilmer and I talked about it, when he got elected that he would have preferred not to have both houses so he'd have a an excuse. He'd have <laughs> to, a foil. Right, exactly. But now what I suspect is since he is such a conservative Democrat that when the Republicans come along and they say we want to do X, that he will then say – uh, you know, I'm going to have to make a grand bargain with the Republicans and he will institute the conservative policies that he wants to institute anyway. He hasn't gotten anything done for two years, but once the conservatives come in, that he'll be like ready to, quote, cross the aisle and work with him, with them. The other thing, two things I'd like you to comment on. The other is this, the 401ks, which are supposedly for retirement, because cap- the cap- capitalism every five to seven years has some kind of a crash. What 401ks have become, because people can get money out of them as an emergency, is nothing but people save money for five to seven years. We have that inevitable crash and people use their 401ks to survive and then they save it for another five years. It's not a retirement plan anymore. It's just something to survive the cyclical crashes of capitalism. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, it never really was much of a retirement uh, system. Uh, It always uh, see. uh, 401ks come from the IRS uh, Section 401, mm-hmm. uh, which really talked about in the 1970s, talked about uh, um, uh, profit sharing plans. You see, that's mm-hmm. what it is. 
the union plans, the real pension plans, where you got so much per month uh, per year of service guaranteed, right? Um, the union plans have been converted to 401. There's a few uh, union plans in public sector, you know, but uh, mostly they've been converted. And it's been a big push by uh, corporations for this conversion ever since Reagan. Uh, why? Because the old plans, uh, the corporations had a liability. In other words, if they didn't make any money, uh, they still had to provide the, the the pension payments, right? They had a liability for that. 401 gets them out of that liability, you know? Mm -hmm. And if there's a crash or something or the company has, a, the company can cut off its contributions to the 401 and they do it during recessions uh, any, any way they want uh, and they aren't liable for the pension anymore. Uh, so it's a way, 401s have always been a way for uh, companies uh, to get out from under their pension obligations. Uh, and yes, if you got a 401, you're going to invest it in something. Uh, and uh, if the stock market collapses, well, you know, so does your retirement fund. That didn't happen under the old pensions, you see. Uh, so you're totally at the um, the, the mercy of the, uh, of the stock market, you know, an investment market when you're in 401ks. And by the way, uh, this relates to Social Security because what they want to do with Social Security is the same thing mm -hmm. they did with public pensions, right? Mm -hmm. Privatize them. And uh, they want to do the same with this big pension system called Social Security. And it's all about, you know, investors wanting to get their hands on these funds uh, to invest the way they want. Your, your other point was about, uh, I think, about Biden. Uh, yes. And, you know, all you got to do, it's not just Biden, it's Democrats in general. Uh, when we had the 2008 crash, Obama, you know, spent $787 billion uh, to try to rescue the economy, bare minimum, didn't rescue it very much, but bare minimum. He then turned around and agreed, Obama agreed with the Republicans in August 2011 to now take out to cut programs by one and a half trillion. Mm-hmm. So he puts in $787 billion, he takes out on the backs of average folks spending twice that amount. Well, you know, Biden will do the same thing. You're absolutely right. He'll do the same thing and he'll use the Republicans as cover. And the argument will be, oh, well, you know, I had to agree to something. I saved this or that. It would mm -hmm. have been worse. There's a... Another Common Dreams piece, lives are on the line. It's time for a national paid leave policy. There is no economic and racial justice without access to paid leave. Ensuring people have the time they need to be with and care for themselves and their families is morally the right thing to do. And it also makes sense for our economy and our national well-being. Investing in paid leave will help our families, our communities, and our nation. Your thoughts, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's a crime. It's obscene the way this country uh, forces people to work in situations, uh, you know, where they should uh, be taken. I mean, when when someone has a baby, right? A woman has a baby. Uh, um, she can't take off. Well, there's a little bit of a leave, but it's not paid, right? There's like uh, two months. You can take two months, but not paid <laughs> in the U.S. Everywhere else in the world, uh, provides significant paid leave for newborns and similar, you know, deaths and so forth. Um, in Europe, uh, you get a year 
paid year, mm -hmm. a whole year off, you know? Uh, if the Europeans can afford it, why can't the U.S.? Yes, the U.S. can. Yes. But the U.S. capitalists have this uh, th this policy of, uh, you know, keep people's nose to the grindstone, keep them working. Well, I would also throw into that, as you, you mentioned, what's happening in Europe. A lot of European countries can afford to do that because they're not spending the, the money that that they're spending on social programs they're not spending on the military because the United States is absorbing that military cost for them. Absolutely. That, that's perhaps the big reason. And that's one of the reasons why the, the Europeans uh, have uh, attached themselves as an appendage uh, to the U.S. economy and political uh, geopolitical ob objectives. Yeah. For, for them to go and uh, have to provide this uh, uh, military spending themselves uh, well, they would they would eliminate uh, all all the safety net that exists in Europe. You're absolutely right. You know that's why it exists. That's why the U.S. Uh, uh, provides all the military coverage, uh, and it exacts a cost for that. When the U.S. wants to do something like sanctions on Russia, <laughs> the Europeans go along with it because if they don't, and the U.S. starts putting sanctions on them, uh, well, you know their nice little arrangement with the U.S. Uh, economically, uh, will, will fracture. You know, it appears to me that neoliberalism is about to eat up the EU in that, you know, the U.S. is pushing them for more for 2% of their GDP, which I suspect will be dramatically decreasing. Um, but like Finland and Sweden joining um, NATO, these countries now actually have to spend more for their military and they're, you know, Finland and Sweden known for having, you know, expansive uh, social safety net. So the neoliberals using their expansionist military policies are going to, if it seems to me, wipe out a portion of their of their social safety nets. Dr. Dr. Jack. Yeah, well, you know, if you increase your spending on military, uh, you have to uh, take it from somewhere else, you know, or. Uh, you have to grow your economy uh, even faster. and But, of course, we know uh, just the opposite is happening throughout Europe. The economies are going in the tank. Uh, so if you're going to increase your military spending, well, then you're going to have to uh, decrease your social spending. Uh, there's, there's no way out of that. Uh, you can't manufacture uh, a wealth out of uh, thin air. Fed in full recession-creating mode comes under fire for another interest rate hike. Raising interest rates puts the burden of fighting inflation on low-wage workers, notes former Labor Secretary Robert Reich. For once, let's take aim at an actual driver of inflation, corporate profits. Your thoughts, Dr. Jack? Yeah, as I've said many times, uh, at least a third of the inflation is is due just to uh, U.S. monopolistic corporations, you know, when you have three or four of them dominating uh, uh, an industry like, uh, you know, the cereal production or chicken production, whatever, uh, whenever you... Uh, uh, have that uh, one third of the inflation is just corporate price gouging. Period. They don't have to. I mean, we we're not buying uh, you know more bread, <laughs> right? And uh, there's no wheat uh, harvest failures going on, so it's not supply and demand. Uh, but yet, uh, you know, bakery products, cereal products are going up uh, significantly because you got three or four companies that are really uh, dominating the industry and raising prices because they can. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Jack, wait a minute, Jack, what would, what would you say? Cause I'm, I'm in listening to you and you're absolutely right. But the pushback would be transportation costs that loading that, 
that trailer full of bread and driving that trailer of bread to the distribution facility and then from the distribution facility to the grocery store, that the gas prices for those diesel trucks is what's adding that extra 75 cents to that loaf of bread. Well, you know, look at how much uh, last month uh, inflation said, uh, what do we got, 17, 18% increase in uh, in bread, uh, bread costs, uh, about uh, uh, twice that, uh, you know, for other other uh, foodstuffs. Mm-hmm. Well, you're telling you're telling me that uh, uh, the transport costs uh, went up 100, 200 percent in order to, in their price equation, to mm-hmm. raise the price 20 uh, percent. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, that's nonsense. That, that that's okay. a cover. That's all that is. I just wanted you to. Push back on because I know that there are people listening that would say, oh, but it, the transportation. Go ahead, Garland. Dr. Jack, um, we got a couple minutes. Uh, your thoughts on um, the argument by the bankers that somehow um, uh, un, uh, additional unemployment is going to help the overall picture. We got about two minutes. Overall picture, meaning inflation picture? Yeah, they, it's, I've been reading over and over that these people on the Wall Street are like, yes, we have to increase unemployment and we've got to do what we need to do to get unemployment up. And that that'll. are you familiar with that argument? Oh, yeah. Well, that, that argument has existed forever. Uh, well, you know, it basically means uh, that uh, the Fed raises interest rate uh, and that uh, causes certain industries uh, uh, to uh, lay off uh, workers because they can't afford uh, the interest rate hikes, you know, whether it's housing or travel or whatever, interest rate sensitive uh, uh, industries. Uh, and um, when people get laid off, uh, they don't spend as much. And when they don't spend as much, uh, whatever they were buying, uh, the prices come down because demand has come down. That's the old argument uh, that uh, it's it's a demand-driven inflation, which it isn't. There's there's some mm-hmm. demand, uh, you know, driven going on, but this is mostly uh, a supply supply side uh, mm-hmm. inflation going on uh, with price gouging as i said mm-hmm. uh, global supply chains have not been uh, you know really healed uh, that's going on and uh, clearly the sanctions on russia uh, uh, not just oil and gas but uh, commodities industrial commodities agricultural commodities of all kinds um, you know that is at least another third of the you know the total inflation increase so two thirds of the inflation increase is not demand so if you're going to try to uh, throw people out in unemployment, uh, it's not really going to bring inflation down very much. It mm-hmm. will some, okay. but not significantly. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Enjoy your weekend, and we look forward to having you back. Okay, thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. 
The Washington Post reports U.S. has sent private warnings to Russia against using a nuclear weapon. The Biden administration has been sending messages to Moscow about the grave consequences that would follow the use of a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former assistant secretary of education and public service at the Smithsonian Institution and a board member at the Institute for Policy Studies, James Counts Early. Sir, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. I'm pleased to be back with you. So the United States, for several months, this is according to The Post, has been sending private communications to Moscow warning Russia's leadership of the grave consequences that would follow the use of a nuclear weapon. This is according to U.S. officials, of course, they're unnamed, who said the messages underscore what Biden and his aides have articulated publicly. Well, this is an interesting story or headline to me because, Garland, as you know, when has Russia threatened to use nuclear weapons, as with when has China threatened to invade Taiwan? To me, this mostly, if not all, is the U.S. putting this stuff out there for domestic consumption. Because as far as I can tell, it's the United States that injected nuclear language into the dialogue August 1st. U.S. to consider use of nuclear weapons only in extreme circumstances, according to Tony Blinken. As long as nuclear weapons exist, the fundamental role of the U.S. nuclear weapons will be to deter nuclear attacks on the United States and our allies and partners. The United States would only consider the use of nuclear weapons in extreme circumstances to defend vital interests of the United States and its allies. That's Tony Blinken in August. So with that, James Counts Early, we come to you. Your thoughts, sir. Well, it is very, very disturbing, and it appears to me that uh, the Biden-Harris administration and the Blanken State Department is really preparing the U.S. public for the possibility of actually uh, the U.S. using uh, nuclear weapons. We must keep in mind that the only country in the history of humanity that has dropped a nuclear weapon on another nation is the United States of America. So the president is set there. Uh, this uh, discussion about the possibility of the use of uh, nuclear weapons or tactical nuclear weapons on uh, the part of Russia is also an indication that the United States is prioritizing the continuation of U.S.-NATO expansion of weapons and a continuation of the Ukraine fight back against the Russian invasion, and that they are not prioritizing the issue of diplomacy. Uh, long lost in this discussion uh, was the Minsk Agreement uh, dating back to early 2000s, in which uh, there were platforms for a diplomatic agreement uh, between uh, the Ukraine and Russia to one uh, inhibit the expansion of NATO by them not joining uh, NATO and further militarizing a frontier towards uh, Russia and addressing uh, the 5 million or so uh, Russian speakers uh, inside the Ukraine who identified nationality-wide with Russia. They could have come to some diplomatic agreement. So it appears that the United States has really abandoned any road to diplomacy and is conceding uh, the possibility of an exchange of a nuclear conflict of some sort 
uh, in the Ukraine in which the Ukrainians will suffer and die and a potential expansion of that into uh, frontline NATO states. So this is of grave concern. When we look at the issue of nuclear weapons and we see Tony Blinken say to defend our vital interest as opposed to, you know, this is supposed to be a last day. It's supposed to be actually deterrent. And if it's the end and somebody's wiping your country out, you would do that to protect yourself or whatever. But when Tony Blinken, when the neocon people say vital interest, that's kind of horrifying to me because it has been my experience in recent years that the vital interest of the neocons is anything but the vital interest of the people of the United States, the actual citizens and working class, et cetera. Your thoughts, sir? Well, it's 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 frightening because what it suggests is that the premise of official premise of the United States government and bipartisan perspective of both Democrats and Republicans and governance is that the world is the province of United States security, not just the national borders of the United States. And we're seeing this with the extension of NATO, uh, not only in its uh, further uh, expansion in uh, Europe towards Eastern Europe, but also the expansion of U.S. NATO forces uh, in the Pacific against China and the threat uh, to defend Taiwan against the legitimate claims of the Chinese government as a part of the Chinese nation. And so this imperialistic uh, perspective uh, put forth as a kind of de facto orientation that the United States can determine that any place in on the entire globe is within the confines of national security should be very troubling to all citizens and should demand that we step forward, not only for the purpose of clarification, but for the purpose of electing officials that will really talk about the legitimate uh, frontier interests of the United States, not uh, the imperial interests of the United States as the global uh, governance uh, entity that will determine uh, who will be protected and who will not be protected through the use of nuclear weapons. There is another element to this Washington Post story that I want to highlight, and, and Garland will probably roll his eyes because I keep going back to this NBC story to make this point. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> uh, Again, I'll read the head. I'll read the first sentence. The United States for several months has been sending private communications to Moscow warning U.S. leadership. I'm sorry, warning Russia's leadership of the grave consequences that would follow a nuclear use of nuclear weapons, according to U.S. officials. And I make the point again, those officials are unnamed, which tends to lead me to believe that they don't exist. But even further than that, we have the NBC story. From back in April, in a break with the past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. NBC News reported back in April that the intelligence apparatus in this country is lying to the American people when they believe it is in their best interest to do so. And this is not some conspiracy theory. This is NBC News saying that this is the game that is now being played. So the question that I have to ask is, is the Washington Post being used here by the intelligence apparatus to, as you said early in the conversation, James, 
uh, to basically to lay the foundation to convince the American people that this is an inevitable outcome and that it's in the United States' best interest to do so. Your thoughts, sir? Well, first of all, with regard to the Washington Post, we have to recognize that these are relatively smart, intelligent people uh, who understand that they don't want to put themselves in a, in a position of being used. And so the question is really one of editorial complicity. Uh, the Washington Post is smart enough in its editorial board and in its uh, research capacities uh, to discern when it's being used and when it's not, and to make uh, conditional decisions that they will carry these inferences from the State Department. And so I think they are in full understanding. But there's a wider construct here than just the United States and Russia or Russia uh, and the Ukraine. And that is the broader global context of the uh, alignment of interests of the Russians uh, in the Pacific uh, with the Chinese and the Russians controlling a significant uh, proportion of the global uh, fossil resources mm -hmm. of oil and gas. And so that here is the real fear of that we may be moving into a global conflagration here in which nuclear weapons are being discussed uh, at the outset. Um, and, and so this is the bigger concern and the concern that that entities like the Washington Post are narrowing the scope of this when they clearly understand the intersections, uh, particularly with regard to the emergence of China and Russia uh, in the Pacific and, 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 and in Asiatic uh, Europe. When I look at what's going on right now with the neocons being in their ascendancy, shall we say, in Washington, D.C., and I see this so-called standoff with Iran, wherein you know, the U.S. won't re-enter the, the, the Iranian deal, and they're always talking with Israel where we're threatening and we're planning on attacking Iran. Meanwhile, these, um, I mean, they're stepping right up to the line in as far as provocations in Taiwan. Of course, we see what's going on. So the bottom line is the Biden administration is engaging all over the world against, you know, perceived adversaries. The problem being, if they were actually to be caught up in war with all of them at the same time, which they can't win. That's the fear, too, that they get in fight with this one and this one and this one. And they're like, oh, no, we can't win all of these. Let's start throwing nu nukes. And that's the other problem of this belligerent foreign policy. Your, your thoughts, James? Well, herein is the importance of focusing in on diplomacy. Uh, that is um, recognizing that we are in a global shift uh, from a U.S., uh, NATO, uh, that is Western Europe-dominated world, to a multipolar world in which now you have the BRIC countries, Brazil, uh, Russia, mm -hmm. India, China, emerging as important axes, plural, in terms of how the world will, will operate. And the importance of moving away from war as the response to figuring out what are going to be the diplomatic uh, modes for pursuing mutual interest uh, on the issues of health and environment and uh, against uh, drugs and against the uh, exploitation of, uh, of trafficking of women and children? 
And what are going to be uh, the protocols that have been accumulated since 1947 uh, through the United Nations as the decorum of nations to handle their ideological and political differences? Uh, the United States is standing outside of all of those protocols and talking about nuclear weapons rather than about diplomacy. And so, but I think for the listening audience, uh, no matter where one ideologically or politically stands around any of these countries, it is in our common interest uh, to go about these issues in a respectful, peaceful, prolonged way and not to be talking about uh, war, uh, talking about the expansion of military weapons in the Ukraine now. Uh, working people, uh, ethnic groups are the ones who are dying both in the Ukraine and uh, within the Russian army, and that it is not in the interest of the vast majority of working people in this country uh, who are suffering the consequences of the rise in food prices, the rise in fertilizer, uh, the rise in uh, energy, uh, as we are seeing uh, coming now into Western Europe and as we are already experiencing here in, in, the, in the U.S. So again, diplomacy should be uh, the topic of our discussion at a national level, and the United States must be brought to the table to be one of the leading voices in that. And that is not what we're seeing from the Biden-Harris White House or from the Blinken State Department. And to that point, Sputnik International reports, ex-UN expert, if U.S. and NATO observed U.N. charter, Ukraine crisis would have been solved long ago. The U.S. has applied double standards in all fora of the United Nations, says Alfred Desias, professor of international law in Geneva, former U.N. independent expert on international order. It is too obvious that the aggressions by the U.S. and other NATO countries in Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and Syria entailed grave violations of the U.N. charter. Your thoughts, James? Well, the United States, in my view, is a rogue nation. And by a rogue nation, I mean that while it talks about democracy and it talks about the rule of law, it consistently stands outside of the parameters of that. Uh, within our own hemisphere, uh, the case of the economic war regime change blockade against Cuba is one instance, despite the fact that the great majority of the world, uh, nations of the world, uh, generally with the exception of uh, apartheid uh, occupation government of Israel vote against this economic war blockade that the United States holds against Cuba. The Pope has, has spoken against that. But yet the Biden-Harris administration persists and has intensified uh, some of the very harsh measures uh, put in place by uh, Donald Trump and has gone in the opposite direction of the accords reached by the administration of President Barack Obama and the then Cuban President Raul Castro. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the principals in the Obama administration just in the last few days has come out and criticized uh, the Biden-Harris Blanken administration uh, for standing outside of uh, these protocols in which there was a respectful agreement to move towards uh, full diplomatic relations, and to continue a accepted process of debating differences. Uh, the United States has stood outside of the accords in Colombia that has been facing a 70-year-plus civil war in not being supportive of the peace process 
uh, now which uh, the new president, uh, Petro, and the vice president, Francia Marquez, are advancing uh, with the Cubans who were central to the agreement with uh, the FARC, uh, one of the guerrilla groups uh, in Cuba. I actually attended uh, one of those meetings in Cuba as the only U.S. representatives a few months before the peace accord was established uh, with Colombia, which not so incidentally was voted against uh, by the Colombian population. But the new president of Colombia has uh, petitioned uh, to remove Cuba from the terrorist list. There's no basis for it to be on the terrorist list in order to be able to use their diplomatic means to deal with uh, the other guerrilla government, which has not come in from the coal. The example of Haiti, and I could go on and on around the world, uh, where the United States is a rogue government standing outside of the protocols of the community of nations as expressed in the most advanced uh, policies uh, within the United Nations. And so this is what U.S. citizens have to be concerned about across the ideological and political spectrum, and to try to bring our public servants uh, to bay and to get them to focus on the issues of diplomacy. And and I think right now the Ukraine conflict is bringing a light upon a lot of the hypocrisy of the United States. The other day, President Biden said that another country cannot seize the territory of a different country using force. And everybody said, well, what are we doing in Syria right now? Why We're occupying Syria. Your thoughts. We got about two and a half minutes. Your thoughts on that uh, U.N. Uh, speech. Well, the, the U.N speech was really a diversion. And uh, again, we could cite so many instances and where the U.S. uh, is standing outside of the seizing, uh, 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 standing really in support of the seizing of property. Uh, Taiwan uh, is really a part of China, and the U.S. is saying, no, we will defend it with weapons to keep China uh, from exerting its uh, national interests there. Guantanamo is a part of Cuba, which the U.S. occupies. Um, we're seeing the expansion of, of the U.S. using AFRICOM um, really to undermine African nations. So we have plenty of examples of where the U.S. is standing outside. However, in closing, what troubles me about the U.N. meetings going on now, we don't know, perhaps because the U.S. press has not covered it, that what have the Russians said at the U.N. forum about the 2014 Minsk agreement, about the overthrow of an elected government in Ukraine? This is where the battle of ideas and the battle of information and public education needs to go on. And it is not clear to me that the Russians have utilized the U.N. forum this week uh, to counter uh, the perspectives, the limited, the negative perspectives put forth by the United States. So. We have to hold both the United States accountable and we have to also hold the Russians and the Ukrainians accountable for honest information such that citizens in all nations can really come forth in common interest again around the issue of how to stop this Mm -hmm. war, which is devastating to working people, including working people here in the United States. James counts early. As always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you. I look forward to it. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Antiwar.com has a piece at U.N. General Assembly. Biden says Russia can't take country's territory by force. The U.S. is currently occupying a major portion of eastern Syria, despite the Syrian government's objection. For insight into this, we turn to our first panel. It's Friday, so that means it's panel time. We're joined by the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you very much. Great to be here. We're also joined by a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of the op-ed, The Wrinkle, Abortion Rights, Vaccine Passports, and Bodily Autonomy, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So at the U.N. General Assembly uh, this past Wednesday, President Biden focused most of his speech on Ukraine and accused Russia of violating the U.N. charter by launching the war. Quote, Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter, no more important than the clear prohibition against countries taking the territory of their neighbor by force, he said. Well, Jim, let me start with you. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi, former leader in Libya, is dead. His country is in turmoil. The U.S. backed that play. Saddam Hussein is dead in Iraq. His country in turmoil. The United States still boots on the ground. Play backed by United States. Syria, Afghanistan, I think you see the pattern I'm establishing here. Uh, the hypocrisy is nauseating Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, pot and kettle. I mean, uh, it is nauseating. It's the sanctimonious hypocrisy of the United States is one of the things that really people in other countries in the world are fed up with. And this is a great example of it. As you say, you know, nobody has violated United Nations international law in regard to um, aggressive actions in other countries' territories more than the United States for decades. And for Joe Biden to get up there and pretend he can preach to the world about this and give lessons about this really does nauseate people. And, you know, it doesn't work anymore uh, for anybody but the audience of American uh, American media. As you say, I mean, there's no scintilla of an excuse for the United States to be occupying one third of Syria and plundering its natural resources, its oil and its wheat. And it's doing that deliberately to destroy, to prevent the reconstruction of the country. And it says it explicitly. So uh, the United States and Joe Biden have, and who Joe Biden, who supported the Iraq war, by the way, the United States and Joe Biden have no standing to be preaching to anybody about this stuff. Steve Poikinen. I'll, I'll do you one better. Uh, on uh, on the show this week, we played that clip of Joe Biden saying, you don't just get to invade countries and take sovereign territory. You just don't. And then we played a clip of uh, Joe Biden 20 years ago chastising someone on uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee saying, hey, pal, when I was in your position, I was the guy screaming, we've got to bomb Belgrade. We've got to bomb Serbia. We've got to do this. we got to go in there. we got to take that. And he's there's. No, uh, just there's no even sense of irony in the, in the media. Who's responsible for putting out both clips? Or where? Why am I on my show on Roxanne pointing this out when we've had 
the entirety of Joe Biden's career where he's cheerled every war and advocated every invasion, been at the forefront of every money grab and money laundering scheme and weapons deal for years and years and years and years. For him to do this, it was open mic day at the U.N. General Assembly following the absolute roast of U.S. foreign policy that took place the day prior on behalf of the leaders of uh, a lot of Central and South American countries. You know, I think something else, two other things I'll touch on in the speech. Number one, Joe Biden says we tried to prevent the military conflict in Ukraine. In fact, the Russians sent a letter, written letter, demanded a written response in which they said, we have security issues on our border and we want to have a diplomatic resolution and a security agreement or there could be, quote, military slash technical measures taken. And the U.S. said we, that's a no, non-starter for us. That's that, that's number one. And they say and he also says nobody threatened Russia. Here's the reality. There is a Rand report. Paid for by the Pentagon, and I'm sure you all are familiar with, with 2019, in which the United States Pentagon's contractors talk about taking Russia, how they can use Ukraine and all of the problems they may have. And the fact that the Russians may take certain areas of Ukraine and Ukraine could get bombed. Either they had Nostradamus to predict what was going to happen, or that was their plan and they executed their own plan. And Joe Biden's lying to us right now. Uh, uh, Jim Cavanaugh. Crucial, as you say, they've said this explicitly. We're out to disassemble Russia, to destroy the coherence of the Russian state like we did in Libya and like we tried to do in Syria and like we did for a while, at least in Iraq, and to create a state which is weak and a nullity. Uh, in terms of political or economic or, 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 or military power. And that's what they were out to do. They've said it, and they knew, and they said in that RAM report, like, you know, Russia will probably respond militarily. They'll probably, try, you know, and they knew that. Every major American diplomat and foreign policy politician and expert, from Henry Kissinger to the head of the CIA, the current head of the CIA, said, if we screw around with Ukraine, Russia is going to react militarily. They knew this, they, and they wanted it. They won in some way. This is the danger of this situation we're in now, because they, for you know, as I said a hundred times, for thirty years after the demise of the Soviet Union, 20, 20 years, thirty, they presumed Russia was a nullity, was 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 too weak to do anything, and for a long time it was, but it is not anymore. And their presumption of Russia's weakness is is a devastating danger to the world because. They are not bluffing about this stuff, and we've seen it. And they're being very cool and calm about what they're doing. You know, being given the fact that they're involved in a war, it's not cool. That's itself not cool and calm. But they're not being scared off by anybody. And I think that the you know the the policy wonks in the United States are still living, you know, partying like it's 1999, and they think they're going to treat Russia like that. A gas station, you know, a, a gas station with nuclear weapons. It's not that anymore. It's a strong country that's got a strong military and they are going to create a create a situation in which they have security on their border. Steve Poygan, and the one thing Garland left out was the 2014 Maidan coup. But anyway, go ahead, Steve. Well, and there was, I mean, we've been, we've been seeding this in Ukraine since the early nineties in the open society foundation that there's a, an ongoing never ending 
um, I guess, money trail from the end of World War II to right now. And we, when it's not just a Rand Corporation document, John Mearsheimer talked about this, uh, that several Russian foreign ministers before him talked about this. This has been one of the most easily predictable, wholly avoidable wars, conflicts, military actions, whatever you want to call it, <clears throat> that in the last 20 years. All anyone had to do, well, at least in the West, was engage diplomatically. And the one thing that the West has been hardwired not to do if there's a chance for a forever war is engage diplomatically. And so all of the predictable events are occurring with all of the predictable consequences. Um, I, I really hope the Europeans have sharp axes to cut firewood. They really do. They're in a bad spot right now. Well, and to that point, <laughs> Jim Cavanaugh, Europe's real-time experiment in energy contraction. This is from popularresistance.org. European society is currently undergoing, and thank you very much, Steve Poikinen, for that transition. European oh, society is— That was seamless, wasn't it? Oh, man, it was brilliant. It was Kavanaugh-esque. Uh, European society is currently undergoing a real-time experiment in energy contraction. Sanctions imposed on Russia in the wake of the conflict have led to a dramatic reduction of imports of oil and natural gas. The Europeans—so anyway, Jim Kavanaugh, a real-time experiment in energy contraction. If, if That's a very nice way to put it. Your thoughts, Jim Kavanaugh? It's part of the controlled demolition of Western civilization that we're of the so-called Western civilization and Euro-American civilization that we're witnessing. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there was a uh, uh, were increasing uh, prices on, on energy supplies anyway, but this has just put a devastating effect on this, and it's going to have a definite. It has, and it's having. It will have a def devastating effect on the European population, on the European political scene. Uh, we're already seeing it. The right is probably going to get power in Italy. Uh, you know, the former prime minister of Italy is saying that the Russians were just trying to, you know, were provoked into intervening. And you've got uh, uh, people just are going to revolt against losing heat and losing electricity and essential industries, aluminum, uh, you know, nitrogen for fertilizers. These are things, you know, they've been closing major basic industries, the, the smelting of metals, metal smelting in, in basic industries is going to go away. So these are things that are going to cause massive unemployment, they're going to cause massive freezing and massive hunger. And that's a, a, a formula for guaranteed political turmoil. And I just don't know. I mean, the Americans have, the American political elite is just poodling along with whatever, not the American, the European political elite is poodling along with, with the United States. And it's going to cost them politically. And I don't know where this is going, but it's not going to be good. Your thoughts, Steve Poikin, and the, the loss of Russian natural gas imports is shaping up to be nothing less than catastrophe for Europe. Just two years ago, the price of gas at the Dutch tidal transfer facility uh, was 11 euros per megawatt. Now it's 17 times higher at 188. Your thoughts, Steve Poikinen? I, it's it's price gouging to a degree that usually only pharmaceutical companies are allowed to get away with. Um, you, th this is something that's sort of unprecedented, and I don't 
I don't know why people haven't just said, okay, but look, the gas didn't go away. The only thing that went away was the willingness for any party to ship it. Now, that doesn't mean that we're in the middle of a supply crisis. That means we're in the middle of a delivery crisis. The product exists. It's that there's an unwillingness at the very top levels to distribute it. That, that's a, a situation that can be solved. Now, this does go back to the sharp axes that I was talking about for firewood, because that's a, a, a multi-purpose instrument sharp axes. And, and there's going to be a lot more sharp axes than there are warm oligarchs come February. So I, it's, again, it's not as if the product doesn't exist. There's uh, an unwillingness at the top to distribute it, and they're squeezing as much as they can out of everyone, because while hungry peasants are mean in a fight, the, they don't get to fight for a long time without food. And without heat. So it's going to come to that point, um, unless, for some reason, cooler heads prevail. You know, Jim, here's the other part. Let's say, you know, somebody's chasing you, and you jump in a river to swim across a river, and you look, there's alligators in the river. Okay, you make it across about half. You're making it. You look on the other side, and there's a pride of angry lions. Even if you make it across the river, you're going to get eaten by the lions, right? Most famines happen in the spring. People put up lots of food. They exhaust their reserves to survive over the winter. The spring gets here. They're out of reserves and you have famine. So let's just say, which doesn't appear likely, Jim, but let's just say for the sake of argument, theoretically, that Europe, quote, makes it through the winter. When they get to the spring, they're going to have used every trick they could to survive. There'll be no trees left in Europe. No trees left to burn. No pets left to eat. And guess what? It's spring and people are going to be very, very unhappy. So even if they make it through the winter, which they probably won't, eh, most springs, most famine happens in the spring. The situation, there's no magic bean at the end of the winter that's going to bail them out. People are going to be saying, it's warm. I guess our jobs are come back. Something's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen, Jim. Your thoughts? I'll say something about most famines happen because they're created. I mean, the Irish potato famine, yep. so-called, and the, and the India, the Bengali famine. Yep. That was the British Empire took the food that was there and brought it to <laughs> brought it to Britain. It was not a you know natural disaster. That was a social and political disaster, and a colonial disaster. And in this case, as Steve was saying, we have the same thing. The gas is there. <laughs> you know, they just don't want to take it, and they, they they're they're doing something even stupider. Which not, they're not forcing them. To give it to them, they're forcing them not to give it to them, and it's uh, so. The, this is something that the populace of these countries who are going to suffer from it are, are noticing and will notice. And you know, I look uh, the, the, as as you say, what's what's going to happen in terms of the long term beyond even if it's a warm winter and it doesn't isn't that bad a deal and they get through the winter, the, the relationship now between Russia and Europe has changed irrevocably. They're no longer going to be the same deals. You know, they now are going to require payments in rubles for everything. They're going to be making deals that are much more uh, on their terms than anybody else's. And there's no more trust involved in that. They are now seeing Europe and the European Union 
is rightfully now seen because they've adopted the stance of an enemy and of an enemy in wartime. And they, they are supporting the military campaign of Ukraine, Ukraine against Russia. That's their choice. But, you know, and they've joined in the American campaign to destabilize and, uh, and dissemble the Russian state. And the Russians know this. So the whole deal of European Russian relations, trade relations, economic relations, mutual support is going to be different from now on. And the only question, between, not the only question, but the question between what happens between now and spring and in the spring is how much real actual military damage is going to be done between now and then and whether people are going to get militarily involved in this uh, over and above their economic warfare. Steve, your thoughts. Uh, there is a person who has magic beans and a solution for Europe, and it's Bill Gates and it's GMO corn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is some that this is something that he's been uh, running around on TV talking to anybody that'll listen well, alongside you in General Assembly in the World Economic Forum. He's hosting a goalkeepers summit where they are flat out saying on stage Bill Gates, Ursula von der Leyen, a uh, number of other European members of parliament. We know there is going to be uh, the potential for a famine in Europe. Well, of course, you know, you caused it. Um, <laughs> but we have the solution, problem, reaction, solution. We have genetically modified seeds that are good for their, they call them climate resistant. The, that's effectively how they're marketing them. So the, the problem is we've collapsed uh, the breadbasket of Europe, Ukraine. Uh, we have severed energy relations with, uh, you know, the main the closest provider of a disproportionate amount of our energy. But here we have a solution because not only can you take this corn, gentlemen, and feed people with it, you can also turn it into some fuel. Uh, so it's a one-stop shopping solution provided to you by Bill Gates and friends. It'll be interesting to see the digestive reaction, and I mean this very seriously, to this genetically modified corn. Because one of the reasons why some, some scientists say that we have this increased peanut allergy is because of genetically modified peanuts that were drought resistant. And there's a protein in the peanut that is now causing kids these. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know yeah. So anyway, that's why you should listen to the show, Garland. Doesn't you, surprise you learn, me. You learn things like this. Um, Libertarian Institute. Americans oppose increasing Ukrainian aid defending global democracy. Two new polls from Morning Consult and Concerned Veterans for America show at least a plurality of Americans are tired of interventionism. The results show twice as many Americans want to send less aid to Ukraine than those who would support sending more. Jim Cavanaugh, this to me is evidence of American ruling elite not listening to their constituents and that Americans aren't wrapping themselves in the Ukrainian flag. It's the elite that are doing so, ignoring what their constituents are saying, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah. It's, this is going to be a political problem in the United States. Look, of course, people on the ground don't really want to go to war for Ukraine. They don't want to go to uh, Famine and loss of electricity for Ukraine—that's not going to happen in the United States. But they don't—they don't want to suffer for Ukraine. They don't see the point of it. There's been, been no vote on whether the United States should be going to war with Russia over Ukraine. There's not going to be. And what's interesting from a political point of view is that both Republican and Democratic 
elites, both Donald Trump <laughs> and Joe Biden, you know, are Russophobic, want to may help defeat Russia thereafter Russia. They want to defeat Russia. And a lot of the so-called MAGA Trump constituency and the working class constituency isn't doesn't really go along with that. So people are learning a lesson here that was taught by the famous Princeton study some years ago, which showed that, you know, when it comes to policy decisions, the bottom 90% of the United of the American population has zero influence as opposed to the donor class. And this is what we're going to see. And there's if there's if there is political uh, opposition and political dissonance about it. it's within the Republican Party more than the Democratic Party because that working class base has gone to the Republican Party like that. So we're going to see uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But as we see, they just do things whatever whatever the base whatever the constituency wants or not, and that's the the real danger. This we're going into war again. Nobody wanted to go to attack Iraq. Nobody wanted to go to war against Iraq. You know, as Thomas Friedman himself said, that was an invention of the, you know, 10 neocons in, in Washington. But this is uh, this is something that we're on a train that we've been trapped on, and we're going to see if something political is going to happen that's going to turn it around or stop it. Steve Poikinen. You know, uh, uh, Jim's absolutely right, and you touched on something super important there, and that is the, the war fatigue that the American public has. The amount of time between um, I stand with Ukraine and uh, me driving uh, into downtown Las Vegas and, you know, seeing the, the Ukrainian vodka specials and right now to where you've got you know, what, 25% of the people bold, like it was uh, a concern way to 11th or 12th on the list doesn't even make the top 10. Uh, that's, that's a pretty quick turnaround in terms of manufactured ginned up support to wait, what are we, what are we supposed to be excited about again? So that is, that is kind of encouraging. What's discouraging is that the support is able to be ginned up in the first place. Um, but I what are they going to do it with Taiwan next? Because I don't think anybody's going to be biting. I really don't. Not enough people. That's for sure. Um, so I, I, I find some encouragement in, in that article and in the polling there. You know, every president in my lifetime, every presidential, uh, election, they've run against war. Lyndon Johnson famously ran against the, 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 uh, the, the television ad of the nuclear bombs exploding. He, they ran as anti-war candidates. Nixon, I'm going to end. They, they said they were going to end the war. Every one of them. Donald Trump, I'm against forever wars. Joe Biden, I'm against forever wars. Barack Obama, because he was supposedly anti-war. Now, they were all lying. But what you see consistently throughout the last 70 years of American history is that the people don't like war and they don't want it. And everybody has to pretend they're anti-war. They get the power, they do what the hell they want. And that's the situation we're facing now. Uh, next article, and I think this is an important one. Secret documents have exposed the CIA's Julian Assange obsession. New revelations show that the CIA secretly took control of the security company hired by Ecuador's government to guard Julian Assange during his exile in London. And, you know, we'll start with you, Steve. The thing about uh, uh, that I find most astounding is that the government can snoop in on meetings between a person and their defense team 
and expect that to go forward. If that goes forward, which it will, if that goes forward in the in a U.S. court, then you have nothing left as far as any type of a, a reasonable court system. That should be thrown out anywhere in the world. Your thoughts uh, on uh, on this article? We'll start with you, Steve. The security state um, and, and the Five Eyes, really, at least in those countries, have created effectively a magic umbrella that that covers everything that they don't like and also protects them from the raindrops of liability, and that is national interest stroke national security. And as long as they can push something under the umbrella of national interest or national security, then they have been given carte blanche to do whatever they want. To the point to where a district judge in the UK can cite a CNN article that is her reasoning for allowing spying on an attorney-client meeting or spying on a meeting with a psychiatrist or spying spying on a privileged conversation with a friend who's also a, a targeted individual of those same governments. You know, they got to take take devices with impunity. Um the, the violation after violation of basic legal tenets, civil and human rights have occurred from start to finish with this case. Uh, and, and nobody really seems to, to give a damn. And, and it's disconcerting. Jim Cavanaugh. It's one of the most disgraceful things. I mean, the violation of civil, the abandonment of any pretense of, of concern for civil liberties is just outrageous. You know, that the British government and the British courts would let this go through the minute they learned about this, that the CIA was spying on attorney-client privilege, that they had plotting to, to, talking at least about plotting to assassinate him, that this was clearly a political vendetta by the United States government and the CIA. And they should, the idea that the British would go along with this in any way disgraces them. It disgraces the United States that they're continuing this prosecution. It's going to, it's disgracing. It disgraces the American and Western media that this isn't front page news every day. They go on about anybody who's who's uh, being repressed or suppressed by China or Russia or Iran. But this has been a decade long prose- prosecution, political prosecution of a publisher for publishing true information. And they don't want to talk about it at all, except to silently consent to it, which is what they're doing. Uh, and it's, it really is. I mean, as, as Steve said, and we're seeing in a lot of ways, they're just laying down for the national security state, the CIA, to completely disregard any the normal, we've come to consider the normal considerations of civil rights and attorney, attorney-client privilege, the ability to speak freely and to even participate in your trial. So, you know, it's outrageous. And I I can't believe we're still talking about it because it's still happening and nobody else is talking about it. Steve, we have just about a minute and a half left. Ukraine crisis could lead to collapse of EU, according to the ex-Greek prime minister. Aside from Ukraine, the second biggest loser in the ongoing conflict in Eastern Europe, both economically and geostrategically, is the EU. My question is, isn't this one of the objectives of the United States in this whole mess in the first place is to cripple the European economy and to basically try to move as much of that economic horsepower to the control of the United States, whether that be United States interests buying up these 
these uh, plants in Europe or they're shifting the jobs to the United States? Well, yes. And, and if you look at their own publications, if you look at their own speeches, if you read John Bolton's book or any of those Rancor doc- documents, this is all baked into it. Uh, this is the the progression of uh, and really the ultimate fruition of those Project for a New American Century documents, because the end goal is supreme U.S. hegemony over the totality of Western Europe, the United States, if they can, Central and South America, Africa, and wherever else we can get a toehold. Uh, it's this is. Um, it's destruction of a continent at the whims of some oligarchs, and, and I, I feel like it becomes more and more obvious every single day. Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, look, they've stolen uh, – what was the quip? The point of the foreign policy in Europe is to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. I mean, Michael Hudson has said this, this is a war against Europe. It's a war against Europe's economic independence and keeping it dependent more and more, making it more and more dependent on the United States. And I remind you, but also they bought up a, the great black soil farmland of Ukraine. That was a result of the, two, of the 2014 Maidan revolution. And so the Americans, American you know, hedge fund companies and Cargill and agrochemical companies are buying up the the, the farmland uh, that will, along with Bill Gates in the United States. And you've got the Americans. Ex- this is a, to extend American economic dominance over Europe. Steve Poikinen and Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, gentlemen, both. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy your weekends. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Senator Sanders blasts Republicans for opposing resolution warning against military coup in Brazil. Quote, I suspect that my Republican colleagues do not want to antagonize Trump, the Vermont senator said. That tells us a little bit about the state of democracy in this country and the Republican Party, end quote. For insight into this, let's turn to our next panel. It is Friday, so we continue with panel time. We are joined by the senior editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of Prejudential, Black America and the President's Margaret Kimberly. As always, Margaret, welcome back. Thank you so much. We're also joined by a diverse communications professional with a background in leading communications departments and being a TV news correspondent for numerous domestic and international networks. Dr. Colin Campbell, as always, sir, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So on Wednesday, Sanders said he has not been able to get a single Senate Republican to support his resolution expressing support for Brazilian democracy and opposition to a military coup, a fact that Sanders lamented as indicative of the state of democracy in the United States. Margaret, let's start with you. The election is October 2nd, I believe. There are those who fear that in January, should Bolsonaro lose, he won't go gentle into that good night. He will, like old age, rage, rage against the dying of the light. 
Uh, also, it's interesting that Sanders would mention Trump in this sense. Bolsonaro is a Steve Bannon acolyte. Your thoughts, Margaret Kimberly? Uh, well, I think he's correct about that. Um, that, uh, yes, it would be um, awkward for Republicans who are afraid of Trump, well, afraid of uh, most Republicans who are Trump followers. I, actually, I should say it that way. So I think he is on to something. But I think the better question is, what would the Biden administration do, if anything? Um, you know, the uh, the coup in uh, soft coup, maybe it wasn't so soft, right, which impeached one president and put another one in jail and got Bolsonaro into um, office. It was a Republican plot, but it was it altogether just Republicans? Did Democrats really have a problem? Would Biden have a problem? So I think that's the bigger question. Uh, where would the current president stand should uh, Bolsonaro lose, which is predicted, and should he uh, give some indication that he won't leave office? Colin Campbell. Well, we already know that there have been Brazilian officials who have met with Washington officials to discuss voting fraud and what happens if the election does not go in Bolsonaro's way and how to combat uh, machines that may be faulty in calling the wrong winner. Where have we heard that before? And so I think that Sanders' prognostications are warranted, being that it seems that Bolsonaro and his administration are taking direct cues from the Trump administration. And we're already dealing with a country that is, you know, has a dividing, uh, a division within their, their society and where democracy seemingly is under attack. We know that traditionally uh, there have been conflicts over democracy in Brazil. We know about colorism in Brazil, the oppression of those who are marginalized, um, those who are uh, very often of those who are darker in complexion in Brazil. So there are definitely um, complexities in Brazilian in Brazil society that Bolsonaro can exploit to the perpetuation of his leadership in that country. And I think that he plans to do so looking at the United States and looking at what Trump did. And I think that when Sanders looks for support, it kind of gives an indication of where Republicans stand going forward as well, where we already know some of the machinations that are going on behind the scenes when it talks about voter fraud, elections, gerrymandering, marginalizing just the, the, uh, those who might be adversely affected in the process by cutting back on uh, places to vote, cutting back on voter freedoms, things like that. Uh, the, one can say that the process in which the um, mostly conservatives have seemed to to fight back against the democratic system, there could be a concatenation with Brazil and how they plan to proceed going forward, being that Bolsonaro had once said that only God could take him from his leadership position. Another uh, article, it's in TASS, <clears throat> Russia, China to fight together against NATO expansion. Uh, Russia and China will fight together against the expansion of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the double containment of Moscow and Be Beijing. Chairman of the Standing Committee of the National Peoples of Congress of China, Li Zhanshu, said at a meeting with the leaders of state Duma factions on Friday. Here's what I think. We'll start with you, Margaret. And that is, you know, we're in a very dangerous time. Two years into the Biden administration, the Biden administration, recently they're in the 
the Middle East, and they're literally doing um, uh, uh, they're practicing attacking Iran with the Israel mili- Israeli military. We've got the Ukraine thing going on, which is very dangerous, and there's talk of a nuclear, you know, there's the nuclear talk in the air. We got uh, Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan and provoking Taiwan. So we've got all, you know, in every different direction, the Biden administration is stirring up uh, 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 mischief and mayhem. And Russia and China, as could be expected, is starting to say, well, perhaps we ought to work together. Um, your thoughts on all of this, Margaret? Oh, well, sure. Of course, they're um, uh, getting closer and closer. What did Xi Jinping say? Better than allies. And this is before uh, Nancy Pelosi and Senator Markey and, you know, and the, the rest of these uh terribly unsmart people were running back and forth to Taiwan. These uh, Russia and China, um, I, you know, initially it may have been a marriage of convenience, but now I think there's true love. They are both under attack by the United States uh, and both countries are um, uh, their out al- their allyship is strengthened all the time. Uh, the you know the Biden administration to your point uh, Ukraine blows up in their faces they did instigate and provoke this war and it didn't turn out exactly the way they planned so what do they do they antagonize China try to have it both ways well yeah we believe in one China but they're uh, treating Taiwan like it's a uh, separate country Biden on 60 minutes every time he speaks they end up having to walk back what he <laughs> said but he said they would come to Taiwan's aid and um, uh, no one in in Mos- Moscow or Beijing is stupid they know they have to stick together and you mentioned Iran and um, Russia is using Iranian drones in Ukraine so the, there has been a power shift. It's been exacerbated by the U.S. Everything the U.S. does to try to strengthen its hegemony actually ends up um, creating new uh, uh, cracks in that foundation. So, of course, they're very good friends. They're going to stay very good friends. And it's just unfortunate to me that um, – uh, the corporate media, rather than just repeating whatever uh, blather the Biden administration is speaking, will say something stupid like, you know, maybe Xi Jinping doesn't back the, uh, you know, war in Ukraine. But every time Putin makes a major move, it's after he's had a meeting, a face-to-face meeting with Xi Jinping. Colin Campbell. Yeah, I think what we should also be paying attention to is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And this is starting to be framed, or it has been already started to be framed, as the anti-NATO coalition uh, started with uh, Russia, um, some of the states uh, outside of Russia, and China. And they're looking at their own border security issues. They've also... Um, Putin also called a meeting with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and it's unclear as to what their partnership would be, since Turkey is already a member of NATO. But what is remarkable is the fact that they want to build this organization to kind of to combat the effects of NATO in the region, and. Because of this, they want to form other partnerships and to look at how they could build up their militaries to push against Western intervention. So I think this is an area that will continue to grow. 
Um, it's something that we should definitely be paying more attention to in upcoming months, especially as the war in Ukraine uh, will continue for the uh, foreseeable future, being that it, there are warnings from Putin that the military intensity will increase in upcoming weeks. If I could add something to that, I think a big part of the Shanghai Cooperation Com- uh, uh, Organization also is this, that the, the its sanctions. The U.S. has used its economic advantage, its dollar um, hegemony, hegemony as a means of coercion. And as long as they were doing a lot of smaller countries, a lot of people were really angry, but they didn't do anything. Now that they've started using it against the major powers, the major powers now, one of them has a tremendous industrial power. The other has tremendous commodity powers. Now they're coming together saying, we're going to form an entity that can get around that dollar hegemony because the U.S. was using it for coercion. If the U.S. didn't use it for coercive means, this wouldn't have happened. And in that process, we're going to create our own currency. Yes, that, that's right. That's what you're going to do. Right? That is going to be based on commodities, many of which are controlled by the countries that are forming the currency. And we're going to basically de-dollarize the, the world trading process. Where, where can I buy some of that currency? <laughs> I'll sell you some. Yeah, let me know. Show. I want some of that as soon as it goes on the market. I've got some. I'll sell you some after the show. Um, <laughs> so, also, so, Iran is uh, trying to become a member, too. I forgot. No, to Iran is a member. Oh, yes, yes. No, Iran is just a minute. member yes, of a member. the SEO. Wanted to be a full member um, by 2023. I'm not sure if it's a full member yet. It may have petitioned to be a member. No, I think, think they were brought in. I think they in were. this last cycle. Yeah. And Margaret, what is surprising to me when you when you listen to the language and the rhetoric, the United States, Joe Biden says on 60 Minutes that he's going to defend Taiwan if China attacks Taiwan. The problem is. I've never heard Xi, Jin, Xi Jinping or any other Chinese official say they're going to or are planning to or would like to attack Taiwan. We now have the discussion about the use of nuclear weapons. Joe Biden, in his speech at the U.N., warned Russia about the use of nuclear weapons. But Russia isn't talking about using nuclear weapons only in response to Joe Biden saying, or actually it was uh, Tony Blinken who said in August that the United States would use nuclear weapons if in defense of its interests or the interests of its allies. So a lot of this jingoistic rhetoric is really the United States ratcheting up the rhetoric. It's not China. It's not Russia. Oh, absolutely. It's... um you know, we see once again, I, I, you know, whatever else we say, we have to talk about how uh, stupid these people are, that um, they are so driven in this uh, fantasy uh, of uh, containing Russia, containing China. They just think that whatever they want to happen is going to happen. And so they make things up. So a lot of it's projection. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Russia hasn't said anything about this. It's the United States that's the uh, war-making uh, party here. And if you look at the transcript of Putin's comments the other night, he didn't say that. He never said that at all. It's the U.S. that always brings it up, and it's the U.S. 
whose actions have brought the world to this point. And it's not just with Biden. This goes back several administrations with the nuclear arms treaties that have the, the U.S. has withdrawn from or allowed to expire. Uh, so this is the culmination of uh, some very, very dangerous, wishful thinking. And also, have, I believe they also bring this up to try to scare people. It's, uh, they, haven't, they haven't done enough to quiet every other narrative. They have to keep people afraid and convinced that Putin is going to start a a nuclear war lest they start questioning all of the um, uh, very, very unwise moves that the United States has made that um, has brought us to this very dangerous juncture. Colin Campbell. Yeah, I think that the saber-rattling coming from the U.S. is to serve as some type of a warning, perhaps. And of course, we've already, you know, know that the U.S. has invested billions into this conflict with Ukraine. But I think that there are ways that the U.S. is trying to call uh, Putin's bluff as far as the conflict, because it does seem like there's not going to be an early amelioration to all of this. So the more that the uh, war intensifies and Americans grow even more concerned about domestic affairs here, I feel that the Biden administration uh, wants to is experiencing a feeling of desperation as far as the commitment and involvement that they have in this conflict and what may be the reality of how long this war actually perseveres. So in order to do that and to maybe prepare the American people for more investment, more economic pain, you have these warnings or these caveats coming from the Biden administration. I mean, it doesn't help that uh, there was no negotiation. There doesn't seem like there's going to be a negotiation anytime soon. And so, therefore, the Biden administration is responding to some of these factors where they could become somewhat augmented. And, of course, we're going into the we're coming into the autumn season. We're in the autumn season now and soon to be in the December season when oil and gas and all of those things uh, will increase for Americans. What sacrifices are they prepared to make, if any? Um, I think the Biden administration is putting those warnings out there in case there are more concessions uh, economically that American people and the American government have to make. Um, Another interesting, David Stockman wrote an interesting article, What in the Hell Was Washington Thinking? And I think the interesting part of this article is this. And it's something that most American people don't know. know. The Russians have taken a part of Ukraine and the Ukrainians are saying we want it back. But here's the problem. The people there are about 90 to 100 percent ethnically Russian, Russian speaking. So Ukraine and the U.S. is saying we want to take this part, part back. But the people are there saying we don't want to be there. We want to be with Russia. Now they're saying and we want to take Crimea back. Here's the problem. The Crimeans have said, you'd have to kill us. We ain't going back to Ukraine. So there's a problem here where the U.S. is saying and the, and, and, the, and, and the government of Ukraine, such as it is, is saying we want to take these parts back and we're going to liberate them. And the people are saying, uh, in fact, the Donbass militias 
are the people from that area. So the Ukrainian army is literally fighting the militias of the people from that area to retake the area that those people don't want Ukrainians in. Most people don't even know that that contradiction exists. Start with you, Margaret. Yeah, the um, uh, the Donbass, the Donetsk and Lugansk uh, republics, they uh, led the charge against the coup government from 2014 on. And this fighting in Ukraine, it's not new. We need to remember that uh, for eight years, uh, people have been uh, dying as a result of uh, the, uh, the coup government's attacks on that region. Some 14,000 people died before this February. Uh, they've always been close to Russia. They don't want to be part of Ukraine. They have literally been fighting to uh, get away from the coup government. So this is, as you point out, it's all nonsense. But uh, people don't know because they're lied to. Uh, there is very deliberate lying on the part of uh, the U.S. government, on the part of corporate media. They simply do not state these very, very simple facts. Because if they did so, it would call into question the, um, the entire enterprise. And Ukraine is uh, still attacking them. They are shelling Donetsk. They are killing civilians. They're shelling areas with no military, of no military significance, no bases, no nothing that uh, uh, they should fear. But their goal is the same, to kill people, uh, to punish them for not wanting to be uh, a part of uh, their government. Colin, let me add this, because a while back I talked to a person who um, is Ukrainian and wrote a book on Ukraine. And he said, I said, well, what do you think about, you know, the, 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 the Donbass region coming back into Ukraine? He said, Kiev had never accepted. I said, what do you mean? He said, they'd never take those people back into Ukraine. They're bluffing. I said, why? He says, if you bring 10 million people who are Russian speakers back into the Ukraine, into Ukraine and let them vote, then what's his name? Zelensky's party will be wiped out and it will so change the, the dynamic of power that the Russian speakers will dominate the Duma, which is their Congress. Like for the same reason, Republicans do not want Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. to become states because you're going to get four Democratic senators and you're going to get all of those going. He said, no, it's all a bluff. They will never allow 10 million uh, Russian speaking Ukrainians to come back and vote and wipe out Zelensky's party. And so there, there are these kind of dynamics that people don't know. Anyway, um, Colin, your thoughts? Yeah, definitely a political calculation there. And we also have to remember that the United States is very big on optics, right? And so who is actually in control of this war? How will this war turn out? We have to remember since January of last year, the U.S. invested almost $16 billion in security assistance uh, to Ukraine's uh, that they said that it says was dedicated to Ukraine's sovereignty and and territorial integrity, and that includes about 15 billion since Russia's um, since Russia's war uh, with Ukraine, right? Since February of this year, and um, since I guess altogether, this money that's being allocated to this is a obviously a huge investment, right? So if you have these billions of dollars going into this conflict that is supposed to support Ukraine, but then to hear that there's possibly uh, an areas that are being uh, given to Russia or that there are some uh, some compromise where these annexed areas uh, will be returned to Russia. 
it looks like the U.S. is then making concessions. And then those optics of being a, a superpower, a military power, a, a heavy influence on the outcomes of conflict are going to be diminished. And I think that the, the currently the U.S. government is sensitive to, the, to that, despite the enormous costs. You know, Margaret Kimberly, we've got an article in Jacobin.com. Secret documents has, have exposed the CIA's Julian Assange obsession. And we find out things such as the CIA, well, literally was, was, was intercepting the conversations with Julian Assange and his defense attorneys. In any court, in any reasonable democracy, you have to throw that case out. In, 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 in the United States, I've worked in the legal system for years. You have to throw that case out. But I got a feeling that it isn't going to be thrown out, Margaret, because this is not about uh, legal issues and issues of consistency and rule of law. Margaret Kimberly. Oh, sure. Well, if they follow the rules of law, he would be a free man. He wouldn't still be in jail in the U.K. Of course, they listened to his conversations. They did everything. They undermined the government of Ecuador, which was giving him sanctuary, spied on his lawyers, uh, thought about stealing his baby's diaper to get the DNA to see if it uh, sounds like uh, Maury Povich gone uh, <laughs> crazy. Um, Julian Assange, uh, you so, are the father. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, and uh, so it's um, uh, a very good read, and it's um, uh, terrible. It shows you how when the United States wants something done, they do not follow their own laws, and it happens in administration after administration. And this all happened under Trump, but it's continued under Biden. Biden has continued uh, the Trump prosecution. Trump uh, kidnapped a Venezuelan diplomat with the diplomatic passport, Alex Saab, and the Biden administration is continuing the prosecution. The United States wants to get anybody, anybody who stands in the way of U.S. hegemony, who wants to, as Julian Assange did, expose everything the U.S. government does. So no, they do not follow the law. It'll be interesting to see if these lawyers who have uh, sued Mike Pompeo, uh, how far their case goes. Uh, if, if I could throw this out uh, to also, uh, Colin, and that is, it's like Guantanamo. They torture these people. And then they say, well, we can't give them a trial. Why? Because everybody will be, everything will be thrown out because we tortured them. I believe in rule of law. The rule of law says give these people their trial. If you tortured them, it's got to be thrown out. If you intercepted and listened to things between the defendant and their, and their defense team, it's got to be thrown out. Without that, you have arbitrary application of the law instead of rule of law. And I believe in rule of law. At any rate, Colin Campbell. Yeah, there are indications that you know, with Assange that he has been mentally tortured by all of this. Uh, he is dealing with what are reportedly mental health issues. Um, and and possible suicide ideation, and you know the, there's that trope that when somebody is losing their mental faculties, they are part of a they believe they're part of a conspiracy that is uh, where they're being spied on by the government and the government is out to get them. Well, with Assange's case, it's apparently true, and so it it almost goes hand in hand where he's experiencing kind of this tortured. 
existence right now because he knows that he was targeted by the government. Um, this was something, this isn't new, however, that the, the revelations uh, coming out that the CIA spied on him. Maybe the, 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 there's breaking news on it, but there's always been that suspicion that the U.S. was spying on Assange when he was in Ecuador or in, um, now that he's in the U.K., that there's going to be heavy surveillance on him, just indicating how far the U.S. will go in order to support its agenda. And I think that obviously that Assange is, is definitely a victim, um, partly because of this. And uh, I don't know what the case is for international law, but what you're saying sounds very uh, accurate there, Carlin, because you have um, when you have somebody who's surveilled, uh, usually at least another party has to know that they're being surveilled for it for the recording to happen and to be submissible. And in this case, uh, it doesn't look like they went through that process. Again, there may be a, a different set of rules, a different set of regulations here, but it does not seem to be copacetic in the way that they okay. that they obtain this information. And, and even then, if it's attorney-client privilege, there's no exceptions for that. You know, there's you just the case should be has to be thrown out in our system. It should never reach the shores of this country. Margaret Kimberly, Dr. Colin Campbell, thank you both so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. Enjoy your weekends. And we look forward to having you all back. Look forward to coming back. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye bye. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space on behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon. We hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 